Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Before I welcome today's exciting guest, I want to introduce my co-host for today's show, Professor Corey McElhaney. Corey is Associate Professor of English and Co-Director of the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Program at Fordham University. He is the author of Futile Pleasures, Early Modern Literature and the Limits of Utility. And apropos to this interview, he is one of the most beautiful writers of literary criticism working today. He also happens to be my dear and beloved friend. Welcome, Corey. Thank you, Chris. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to be able to do uh, this interview with you, and I'm lucky to introduce our special guest for today. When Priscilla Gilman was a child, she had only a vague understanding that the friends populating her parents' New York City apartment, the aunties and uncles that read stories to her, gave advice, and treated her with love and affection, were some of the most important American authors of their generation, including the likes of Toni Morrison and Bernard Malamud, amongst many others. Such was the Bohemian Intellectual Salon that Priscilla's parents, the legendary literary agent Lynn Nesbitt, and the famed drama critic Richard Gilman built around their two daughters. Richard Gilman, the subject of Priscilla's immersive new memoir, The Critic's Daughter, poured his creative energy and passion into both his laser-sharp and sometimes merciless criticism and into his parenting, which was full of imaginative games, joyfulness, and an unequivocal love for his daughters. His carefree disposition as the parent of the romantic imagination belied, as Priscilla tells it, great insecurities about his influence as a critic, his occasional writer's block, and his burning desire to be meaningful within his small but profoundly influential literary world. When Richard and Lynn suddenly split, Priscilla finds herself mediator between her mother's anger and her father's desperation at losing his family, a buffer between her father's emotional instability and her younger sister, Priscilla finds herself consumed by an adult role she feels compelled to take on. Told in a five-act structure that echoes the very plays that her father loved and critiqued, the critic's daughter is Priscilla's rediscovery of her father through her memories of their relationship and in the voluminous library of writings he left behind. The result is a picture of a complicated, flawed, but exquisitely human man, as much a tribute to his enormous gifts as a writer, lover of literature, New York City sports teams, and his family, as it is an awakening to his shortcomings. The critic's daughter helps us understand how the bonds between children and their parents are always mediated by the private lives of adults. Written with a professor's eye for literary detail and a memoirist's understanding of the beauty in the eccentricities of everyday life, 
The critic's daughter does what few literary memoirs attempt, paint a portrait of an extraordinary thinker that is not dulled by the changing and charged nature of a relationship between father and daughter over a lifetime. In Priscilla's hands, we rediscover the value of clear-eyed cultural criticism and come to understand how such writings are always an act of love and self-invention. Priscilla Gilman is the author of the previous memoir, The Anti-Romantic Child, and a former professor at Yale University and Vassar College. Her other writings have appeared in the New York Times, O, the Oprah Magazine, and elsewhere. She lives in New York City. Welcome, Priscilla. Chris, wow, that introduction. I'm a little teary over here. <laughs> that was well, gorgeous. Talk about beautiful writing and precise thinking. And wow, wow. Thank you so much. Thank you, Priscilla. And I'm so pleased to be able to, to do this interview with my friend Corey, who's himself such a beautiful writer of criticism. But I want to start with that question of your father's writing. It's clear that you had familiarity with his work previous to writing this memoir. But what did you discover about your father that you could only know through his work? That is such a great question, Chris. I had no idea. You said voluminous. Just how voluminous. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, there were so many pieces that I had never read, so many reviews that I had never read. And, you know, I had never read any of his books all the way through mm. before I started working on this book. And I think I just, there were so many things, you know, one of the major arguments of my book or one of the major messages that I hope people will take away is just the complexity of human beings and the contradictions that inhere in all people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, reading some of the earlier reviews, I talk in the beginning of the book about this essay on the necessity of destructive criticism. I had never read that essay before. And that's the essay where he talks, he quotes George Bernard Shaw and says, loyalty in a critic is corruption. Hmm. And that became a sort of touchstone for me as I was thinking about loyalty as his daughter and being honest in this book and still um, being loving. And so I think, you know, I read an essay that he wrote in a, in a book called Men on Divorce, The Other Side of the Story. Hmm. Um, such a juicy um, book. And I'd never read that piece before about his feelings about his splits from his first wife and my mother. So there were so many different things I discovered, and it only reinforced my sense of him as an infinitely complex, fascinating, and troubled person. I will say, though, I will end by saying that I just was bowled over by what a great writer he is. Uh, I, I was I was struck by these <laughs> by these little snippets you were giving. I was thinking, oh my God, I know so many people who would cut off their their pinky finger to be able to write a sentence like that. I about, would. <laughs> yeah. <Yes>. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I recorded my own audiobook and the part the, I, reading his sentences out loud because I weave his words throughout the memoir um, as epigraphs. I also insert them in the middle of scenes and I discuss them and I relate quotes from his criticism to his own, his personal life. And when I'm reading some of his sentences out loud, it was difficult to read them out loud, Chris, because they're very, 
They got a lot of clauses, a lot of them. <laughs> um, they're very sinewy, and, but sinuous and winding and meandering and mm. surprising. And, you know, I, as you know, I have a background in theater and I did my audiobook very quickly with few mistakes. But the few mistakes that I did make were reading my father's sentences out loud. That's, that's wonderful. Priscilla, I have so many questions that I'd like to ask you. But oh, considering cool. that we're, um, you know, just a stone's throw away from each other here in, in Manhattan, I wanted to start with the observation that, you know, The Critic's Daughter it's a tribute to your father, of course, but it's also an ode, a very moving ode, to a New York City that in many ways no longer exists. Oh, um, you got it! <laughs> as you put it in the prologue, your father would have been horrified by the loss of New York City's edge and affordability and so forth. So what was it like revisiting the New York of your childhood for this book? And are there any corners of the city where the kind of world your father inhabited continues to thrive? Oh, Corey. You know, I absolutely see this book as an elegy for a lost New York, a lost intellectual culture, uh, and hopefully as a kind of goad to restore some of the things about that New York and that intellectual culture that were wonderful and marvelous and fertile. Obviously, there were a lot of aspects of it that were problematic, but... <laughs> You know, I think the corner of the city that you and I live in is probably the closest <laughs> to the New York of my childhood. Um, I will say that I interviewed Lori Siegel um, several times in working on this book, and she still lives in the same apartment on a hundred, you know, in the hundreds on the Upper West Side. And going, and I went around the city and I photographed all the buildings that we lived in, and the lobbies, the exteriors of the buildings. And I walked through the parks. I really wanted to evoke that kind of, and, and bring it back almost like a brigadoon, right? It only mm -hmm. appears, you know, every so often, but I wanted people to feel like they were walking through those rambling rent controlled uh, apartments with me going in and out of those apartments. And this feeling of surprise and magic and that anything could happen at any given time and that people were not, worried about being kicked out. And you know, it's interesting, in another interview that I did, the person who was interviewing me, interviewing me mentioned that, uh, you know, Reagan was elected in the fall of 1980. And that's also the fall that my parents split up. Mm. And my father's financial struggles, you know, in many ways were linked to what happened to New York City in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And the Upper West Side becoming unaffordable, the Upper West Side becoming chic. And, uh, you know, there are little, there, there are places like the Mysterious Bookshop and the Drama Bookshop, which has been revived thanks to Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, and, you know, and that's where my father's um, book party for his Chekhov book was held at that bookstore. Um, so I, I, I go in search of those places often, Corey. So Priscilla, uh, family memoirs like The Critic's Daughter are often marked by traumatic revelations and the demystification of a romanticized child. But yours is really a tribute to a complicated but ultimately admirable and, and quite loving man. Even yes. at his lowest points, your father clearly adored you and your sister, cared a great deal about family and friends, and put yeah. um, much of his life's energy into being a good parent. Were you aware when you were writing it 
how much of a rarity it is to have a to have a memoir like this end up as a um as a wonderful tribute to someone who is on the whole was on the whole just a very good person oh chris that kills me he was on the whole a very good person and you know, I, I think as I wrote, this was an extremely grueling book to write. The Anti-Romantic Child about my older son who is autistic. And, um, you know, that memoir was hard to write. I had to revisit my first marriage, which had broken up and recapture those feelings of being in love with my first husband. This one going back into all of these painful scenes um, was really wrenching, but at the same time, I felt sustained by that love. And I had my scarecrow doll sitting on the shelf in front of me. And, you know, this photograph of my father that was his last faculty photo at Yale Drama School, where he just looks like, he looks like a combination of, uh, you know, classic Upper West Side intellectual and Grover from Sesame Street, with his little <laughs> wry smile. Um, you know, and I think, I think that is... I think I was trying at the same time that I was trying to pay tribute to a very eccentric, idiosyncratic, unusual man. I also wanted to tell this universal story uh, about how all of us, whether it's our parents or it's a mentor or it's a teacher or it's some role model in our lives, we all have to confront at some point their limitations, their flaws, mm. that they are problematic, that they are not the idealized fantasy figure that we initially saw them as. And you two, I'm sure you would agree, we had mentors in undergrad and grad school, literary mentors um, that we then saw in their private and personal life. And we saw the complexity of those beings. And I think I wanted to make this argument um, that it's important to look at these people in our lives with rigor and honesty, but at the same time, compassion and mercy. Mm. And I do feel incredibly, um, I hate the word blessed, you know, hashtag blessed, whatever, but I can't <laughs> think of a better word right now. To say that, you know, my, I always felt, I mean, you put it perfectly, Chris, I always felt no matter if my father was raging or depressed or insecure, whatever it was, I always knew in my core that he adored me and my sister and my brother more than anything else in the world and would give his life for us. And that's an incredible gift that he mm -hmm. gave to me that sustains me to this day. Um, that's beautifully said. So um, after your parents' separation, when your mom begins revealing things about your father, you write that she saw this as dispelling your illusions about him, as yes. you put it. Uh, um, enough with unquestioning love, it was time for criticism. Mm, and mm -hmm. later in the book, after your father dies and your mo mother softens her stance on him, you write that you were moved by her ability to move at last beyond criticism to kindness. So in light of your father's profession and your own scholarly research on the history of criticism, how do you view the relationship between criticism on the one hand, in every sense of that word, and yes. love or kindness on the other? Are they necessarily opposites, as so many people seem to think? Absolutely not. And <laughs> what a great question. I, um, you know, one of my dissertation chapters, uh, my dissertation was called Beyond the Power of Criticism. And that's from 
a review of Wordsworth by Francis Jeffrey that is scathing. And he's, he's essentially saying Wordsworth is incurable and we give him up. Uh, he's beyond the power of criticism. There's nothing I can do. He's a patient expiring on the table. Uh, and I oh, took wow. that phrase. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I took that phrase and I turned it around and I, and I wrote about how writers in the second half of the 18th century and the early 19th century tried to put themselves beyond the power of criticism on the one hand by revision and writing in accordance with what they thought critics would want, but on the other hand, in cultivating an indifference to a criti critics and criticism that they did not think were important, um, an ability to believe in the worth of their work and to write without thinking about how that work would be received. And one of my dissertation chapters is on Pride and Prejudice. Mm. And I write about Darcy as the quintessential critic and Elizabeth as a kind of work of art. Initially, he looks at her only to criticize. That's a quote from, from Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. And by the end, the love between Darcy and Lizzie, what makes it such a great and meaningful love is that it can include criticism, right? In other words, they both in their relationship with each other help each other to see their flaws, help each other to see their limitations. They grow um, as people uh, it, it, because of that connection between the two of them. And I absolutely think that my father uh, taught me, and as a teacher, I do the same thing. The highest form of love is really honesty. And mm -hmm. if you cannot give someone criticism, meaning feedback, suggestions, um, pointing out moments that don't work, pointing out a word that isn't the best choice, then you're not really being a loving teacher, right? Mm. You're not really helping that student to be as good as he or she can be. And I think as a teacher, you know, one of my father's students described him in a eulogy as, you know, he, he would practice kind of slashing criticism where everyone in the class would just sit there and, and he had them review, it was called the crit workshop in, in the drama school. And they were allowed to review anything, a TV show, a movie, a play, a book. Um, someone even reviewed a cookbook once. And he would eviscerate the things that he thought were bad. And then with a smile, he would point out the things he liked and then after class, give them a hug. <laughs> <laughs> so slashing criticism with a smile and a hug. I think if you respect people and genuinely want them to learn and do better, you should be able to give them criticism um, that takes their work seriously. Hmm. I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> yeah, that's such a difficult line to to draw between, you know, being able to be critical and honest and being able to give someone a sense that that there's a possibility for them in that in, in, in that work. Uh, but it sounds like your your father knew exactly how to draw it. He really did. And, you know, you two were both literature teachers, so I'm sure you've, you you would agree with us. You know, I always liked best the teachers who would give me a page of feedback, like it would say A on the paper, but it's not just A, great, great work. Like, I don't want that. I want someone to say, here's what you can do better. Here's what I'm engaging with this idea that you have. Could you push this a little bit further? And I would always say to my students, it's hardest with the students who are getting the grades, right, comparatively, but are at the top in a way because you owe it to them to help them too right? You, you, you need to go into their work and engage with it and give them lots and lots of feedback. It's not about the grade. It's about the quality of the feedback. Hmm. 
Agreed. Absolutely. Some of the real fun of of this memoir comes from learning about the close family relationships you had with your mother's and father's clients and friends. These include Toni Morrison, who was famously Aunt Toni in your home. Um, At what point in your growing up did you realize that this wasn't the -the run-of-the-mill set of friends (laughs) your parents had around the house? And did it change their meaningfulness to your childhood self? You know, I think when I was a very little girl, uh, my world was was five blocks on the Upper West Side. I went to a preschool very near 333 Central Park West, the building that I lived in, famously immortalized in The New Yorker by Jane Kramer in a fantastic piece that you both should read. And she was one of my parents' best friends. Um, I think when I went to Brearley, the girls' school that was on the Upper East Side, and, and in that day, Corey, remember if you lived on the east side, it was very different than if you lived on the west side. And (laughs) taking the bus across town and and making friends with people whose parents were lawyers and or Mm. bankers or lived on Park Avenue. I was like, oh, okay. Um, I'm actually a weirdo in this school um, a bit. You know, although Becky Worryfee went to Burley with me and was my good friend, uh, the daughter of of Anne Worryfee and Herman. And I started to realize most people don't live the way my parents live. Most of the parents in my school have stay-at-home mothers and the fathers are going out and they're lawyers and bankers and all of this. It didn't really change my relationship to Tony or Uncle Byrne um, or Ann Beatty. It just made me, I, I would say, just appreciate them even more. And I think as kind of an antidote to the conservatism of the Upper East Side, it's like, oh, thank God we're having Tony over for dinner tonight. Um, but I think also I had a sense from a very young age that people who were lionized in the culture, like when Tony Beloved, you know, I was in high school when Beloved was published and, mm. you know, she just exploded. And I just remember always thinking, you know, reading profiles of people and just thinking the public in general doesn't know these these people as people, right? They worship them, they put them on pedestals or they criticize them in, in harsh and uh, cruel ways. And they don't know the blood, sweat and tears that it took to get to this point for these people. They don't know the struggle. They don't know the personal demons. They don't know any of those things. So, it, And I think that prepared me to write about my father in a way, mm. you know, to sort of understand the difference between a public persona and a private individual. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Along those lines, um, you know, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was it's unapologetic portrayal of the intellectual environment that your parents thrived in and that's no small thing in our current moment <laughs> no. in our current moment when toxic anti-intellectualism is rampant so from your viewpoint how has the role of the intellectual changed in the years since your father's death and is there a place for your father's style of criticism today oh Corey, fantastic i absolutely Uh, when I conceived the idea for this book, wanted this book to be an intervention in the discourse about intellectuals and public intellectuals and criticism in our culture. So I'm so glad that you saw it that way. And I absolutely, I hope that my book can galvanize people to invest in book reviews, 
separate book reviews. They're all dying and invest in critical mm. journals and understand that critics make huge contributions to our understanding of culture and that criticism in its highest form is about noticing and recognizing and bringing into prominence voices and perspectives and works of art that otherwise might be lost, mm -hmm. right? And I think that my father, it, it, I think it's very important to emphasize that good criticism, it is, it was for my father about dispelling hype and, you know, pointing out that some sacred cow is completely absurd or, you know, <laughs> describing Jason Robards, um, directing Jason Robards is, must be like moving heavy furniture around the stage. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, but all of this kind of scathing criticism the venom, the vitriol, all of it was essentially for him in the service of truth and beauty and art, right? He wanted to clear the way for the truly worthy. He wanted to clear the way and make a space for great acting, right? And moving, meaningful, intelligent works of art. And I think he would be today, you know, it's, I, I did an interview with Lit Hub where the interviewer asked me about the difference between criticism then and criticism now. And I think what's great about criticism now is that we have a greater diversity of critical voices. Mm. And we have, um, it's not just confined to, you know, the six top people or whatever it was. Um, and there's more, there's more ethical, I, I think there's a higher ethical standard in criticism. I, I, I was shocked that when I looked back at the reviews of my father's books, some of them were reviewed by Anatole Boyard, uh, his best friend. <laughs> I'm like, this feels a little, feels a little off to me. Um, but you know, at the same time, I think that I hope that my book is a testament to the bracing quality of great criticism. That a great critic can wake you up. That a great critic can also be creative. Mm -hmm. Right. That reading criticism is not just about, oh, here's the middleman who's giving me access to a work of art, but that there's something worthwhile about reading criticism on its own terms. I, I think I that's true. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree. And I, I feel like I felt reinvigorated by mm. criticism after reading your your book. And I wanted to it made me want to turn to both some of the sort of classics of great criticism, but also to think more about how, you know, that kind of writing works today. I, I'm going to take us in a turn of direction here for a second. And and I don't think I'm spoiling too much to say that your, your parents' marriage in the memoir unravels partially because of your father's uh, infidelity and, and his predilection for a certain kind of submissive masochism in sexual relationships. Mm -hmm. yep. your, your mother was clearly horrified by what might have been called at the time deviance or perhaps even perversion. But I think, yes. Cor but Corey mm -hmm. and I were both struck by how mild, um, you know, what, what might be called his kink was in today's yes. terms. And I wonder oh, how, my yes, yeah, I so how, agree with you. How do you, <laughs> say that how all do the you time. square that now? How do you bring your, your current oh. writing self into that moment? Chris, I thank you so much for bringing this up. I was just so struck by how mild and I, you know, I, I say this often today, my father would have a million websites to go on. He'd be able to meet 
a, a <laughs> slew of people who would be happy to do what he wanted. Um, and, you know, my father even called them perversions in his memoir. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the things that was so sad for me and just overcame me at times as I was working on this book is, you know, this, this sad sense that my father lived too soon in a way that he labored under the sense of incredible shame and guilt about his sexuality um, that was so unnecessary. And, you know, and he found people who supported him, but I think I, I felt so much empathy for my father, understanding that he was in a marriage to somebody who, and his first wife was the same way, um, my, my, my brother's mother, that both of them were horrified by his mm. sexual predilections and his sexual tendencies. And I was like, how awful would it be to be in a partnership with somebody who looked at your completely acceptable, to me, normal, mild, um, even if they were extreme. It's just a tragedy to be in a relationship where your sexuality is not accepted. Mm. Yeah, and and there is this sense that of of the many things we've gotten wrong in our present moment, that there is a new kind of acceptance and a and a shedding of some of the guilt, a shedding of yes. that language that's so heavily laden with yes. with religious and other kinds yes. of guilt. And I'm sure your father, you know, in writing of it as a perversion, was like channeling both a sort of a Catholicism that he had chosen and a Judaism that he was his heritage all in all in one giant guilty ball oh you're so spot on there and you know when he wrote about it in his memoir faith sex mystery great title um <laughs> that book came out when i was in when i was a junior in high school and i think writing about it telling the truth about it um even as he did use the word at times i think that the process of writing about it and then especially that it was you know it was on the front page of the new york times book review of how far of the mighty fallen chris and corey i mean mm -hmm. that book would never be on the front page of the new york times book review <laughs> um, and but you know it was embraced and mary gordon gave it this rave review and it he was on npr with terry gross who was extremely sympathetic to him that's a wonderful interview i'll send you the link to oh, it oh i have to i'll i'll, I'll oh. put that link on the website oh sure. thank you it was she was so wonderful with him and i remember he i remember seeing him after he did the interview and i could feel a weight that was lifted from him. He looked more vibrant. His face looked more open. And I think, you know, my father's coming to terms with his sexuality in writing the book and in the way that it was received and receiving so many snail mail letters from people who wrote to him and said, I had the same struggle. Thank you so much for giving voice to it. Thank you so much for destigmatizing. All of that stuff was so healing for him. And I think it was one of the things perhaps subconsciously that emboldened me to become a memoirist mm -hmm. because I could see how when he shifted from just being the impersonal critic to being telling a personal story, it enabled him to achieve a kind of peace that he had never been able to attain before. And I don't think it's an accident that he met my stepmother in this and fell in love with my stepmother and, you know, had this incredible love uh, about six months after his book was published. Oh, that's fascinating.
I really loved the list of uh, 40 characters in search of my father. <gasps> oh, thank you. That was so much fun. There were 70 originally, Corey. 70, I wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I love not just the Pirandello shout out, but also, you know, your memoir really makes it clear that our relationships with the people in our lives aren't just similar to our relationships with cultural objects. They're actually often triangulated through those yes. objects. So how did your investigation of your shared cultural touchstones, the movies and books and plays that you and your father both loved, how did that color the ways in which you understand your relationship with him? Oh, Corey, no, almost no one mentions that. And it was so important <laughs> to me. And you got the Parandello shout out. Thank you. <laughs> sure. um, yeah, you know, it was it, that part of the book was in some ways the most fun to do. Um, I mean, getting to write about my dad as Willy Wonka, <laughs> uh, you know, getting to write about my dad as, as Grover and Cookie Monster and, and the Gnome King from the Oz books. That was super fun. It also was some of the most challenging, some of the most, the West Side Story, that the King from The King and I, which starts the book, mm -hmm. right? And uh, Johnny from Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Those, writing those, watching those and experiencing those artworks in order to do it, reading Tree Grows in Brooklyn again, watching the movie with my son, it was just overwhelming. Um, emotionally for me. So some of the most painful moments in the book, some of the rawest moments come vis-a-vis -vis my investigation of how my father is like these characters. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I love what you said about triangulation, because if you remember in the scene where he takes me to see A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and Johnny is dead, has died on the screen, and I say, my father and I are crying in the theater, mm -hmm. and we reach out to hold hands, and I say, are we crying for Johnny and Francie? Or are we crying for ourselves? Mm -hmm. um, that's a and of course, it's both. Right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think we come to understand, I think it works both ways. I think we understand literary, theatrical characters through our relationships in real life. But I think it also works the other way, right? We bring our experiences of characters to our interactions with people in our real life. Haven't we all searched for a Darcy at some point or another? <laughs> <laughs> Corey and I were, were curious about your mother's reaction to, to your memoir. You thank her for being the agent rather than the ex-wife and mother in addressing the work. Um, yeah. What does she think of having these difficult stories from her past out in the world? And were you worried she wouldn't want you to publish it? You know, I'm very close to my mom and she has been very supportive of it, although she has not read it and will not read it, um, which is interesting. My, my ex-husband um, never read Anti-Romantic Child uh, and they both have similar reasons. They don't want to go back into extremely difficult, challenging, painful moments in their mm. lives. I think it's been harder on my mom than we anticipated it would be because there have been some a few very small minority but a few readers who respond to her um saying you know i that i'm critical of her in some way that you know either they side with my dad and they think she was it was wrong to tell me these things about him but i think that 
it's hard. I mean, it's, and my mom is very brave and she very much supported me in doing this. You know, I, I, when I first mentioned doing it to her, cause my agent, um, who was my friend in grad school and then worked with my mom at her agency had, had always wanted me to write this book about my father and to write this book about their intellectual and artistic and literary culture that they brought me up in and all of this. And when I mentioned it to my mom, she was like, but why? Your father, you know, yes, that was a long time ago. Does anyone care about your father? <laughs> Richard Yeoman, he's not that famous. He's not like Toni Morrison or something like that. Like, does anyone care? And then I explained it to her in terms of it being this kind of universal story. And she got it. And so that's what I meant when I said sort of putting the agent in her, like, yes, it was going to be hard for her to have all this stuff out there. Although, you know, my dad did put it out there um, in his own in his own book and, and mm -hmm, his articles mm -hmm. and, and his interviews. Um, but I think for her, she understands. And, I, I, you know, I overheard her saying to a friend who had called and was asking her, like, how do you feel about this? And I overheard her saying, you know, I was Joan Didion's agent. Come on. I mean, you know, Joan said all, for writers, you know, everything is material. Priscilla is a writer. She needs to be able to do this. And I remember thinking, wow, my mom thinks I'm a writer because it's mm. only very recently that I thought of myself as a writer. I always used to write teacher down on forms and just hearing her say that really, really made me feel so good. I love that. Aside from your parents, your memoir focuses quite a bit on your relationship with your sister, Claire, and your role as her protector, especially after your parents' divorce. And mm -hmm. it's very clear and very moving from the book that your relationship with your sister helped you get through some of the hardest times of your childhood. Yes. Um, but along the lines of Chris's question about your mother, I was also wondering how your relationship with your sister influenced the writing of the book itself. What was her involvement in the writing process and how did she impact, um, you know, the way you approached your father and your parents' relationship? Yeah, Claire is my best friend. And um, you're absolutely right that, you know, there's a line in the book where I say, you know, we were allies, we were bunkmates, we were compatriots, no one else knew what we knew. Mm -hmm. You know, we went back and forth in, 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 from these two worlds of our parents. Um, I interviewed my sister a lot. I sent her a lot of emails, a lot of texts. Um, you know, we looked through pictures together. When I write memoir, I don't show what I'm writing to anyone while I'm writing it, except for my agent and my editor. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's, I, I think especially if you want to tell a truthful memoir, you really cannot be worried about hurting someone or um, saying something that the other person doesn't want uh, or anything like that. So. You know, I think, but I think it's challenging. I mean, I didn't, and, and when I was writing my first book, I didn't even tell my kids I was writing this book. And uh, it's only like when it was about to come out that I had to tell them, oh, Benj, um, mom's going to be on the cover of Newsweek with a book about you, you know? And he's like, oh, wow, okay. Um, but, you know, they knew all along. And my brother also, um, my brother was just an absolute gem. I mean, he would send me these, I would ask him a question in an email and I'd get like a five page type letter. <laughs> back with all of his memories and his thoughts. And I definitely wanted to check my perceptions of things and mm -hmm. make sure, like, am I right in thinking that we never thought they were going to get divorced? Like, let's check in. And, and my brother and my sister were like, no, we didn't. They told us over and over again, they never would. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, good. Right. All right. 
Um, so it was really like checking things like that, getting details about like the names of the dolls. But I do have an, an amazing memory, which is both a gift and a curse. I think. I, I feel like what you described <laughs> is the only is the only thing now we have that is sort of quote unquote truth in memoir, and that is understanding that people will have different perceptions, and that that's okay. Exactly. Uh, Instead of trying to like nail down absolute facts, I think what you did is the due diligence of seeing, you know, your siblings uh, understanding emotionally of those of those memories and having that be important. Absolutely. And my sister would tell a very different story about her experience of my father, as would my as with my brother. And it really, yes, it was about I don't want to attribute anything to them or to the kids collectively without checking with them to make sure that that's how they felt and getting certain facts correct. Like which apartment was it where this happened? Right? Mm, or something like mm -hmm. that. But I didn't need to check many facts because I really do like, I'm the friend who, you know, my, my elementary school friends will be like, what was I wearing when we went to the movie? And I'm like, it was a, pur it was a purple off the shoulder sweatshirt. Okay? Got it. <laughs> that's amazing, but also must be a, a, a burden at times. But Chris, it is a burden at times. It is a burden. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, yes. Uh, so the account of your own divorce is is filled with a, a good deal of sadness, but you also lay out the ways in which you attempt to avoid the dynamics that plagued mm -hmm. your parents during their own separation and, and ultimate divorce. Is yeah. this a book in one sense that is a template for how to learn to avoid inheriting the worst mistakes of one's parents? Oh, Chris, I'll take that. I love that. That's great. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, you know, my ex-husband is, he lives in my building. Uh, we spend all our holidays together. I talk to him every day. He's a great oh, friend. That's lovely. Uh, he actually helped me with it. He's a brilliant, brilliant editor, um, a brilliant poet. Um, and we have a wonderfully supportive relationship. And that was incredibly important to me. Um, to make sure that that was the case. Because I, like my mother, initiated the split. I was the person who said, I can't do this anymore. And I, my kids were very young and I wanted to make sure. So we nested, you know, for three or four years, meaning that we, the children did not have to go back and forth between houses. We had one place and we, we moved in and out of it. Um, I never speak you know, of course I speak badly, you know, everybody does it, somebody I'm like, oh, you're down. I can't believe you did that. <laughs> um, but essentially my kids know that their parents deeply love each other and have each other's backs and are very supportive of each other. And that was, you know, we worked with a mediator. We wrote a parenting plan when we were splitting up with like a six page parenting plan with all of the contingencies. We revisit it from time to time. Uh, we'll sometimes have arguments about decisions around the kids, but we work them through and we are a united front with the children and the children are allowed to love both of us. Um, and I think that was, you know, one of the things that was hardest with my mom was that my mom really was not able to see or discuss my father's worth or his positive qualities uh, for a very long time, but she does eventually. And so, you know, she gives me an incredible gift. Uh, which mm -hmm. a lot of people who bitterly split, whether it's a marriage with children or just a partnership or a relationship, are never able to get to that point. And my mother was, and she's a heroine to me for being able to do that and give me that almost that benediction 
of, of asserting and validating my father's excellent parenting and his essential worth as a human being. Hmm. I, I think you need to co-write that book with your with your ex <laughs> because that's a. Oh, I mean, okay. You're 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 telling a story that is not told um, about you know the uh, co-parenting after a after a divorce, and I think that would be a a really necessary book. I don't know if it's one you want to write, but uh, it would be <laughs> it would be one that would be powerful. I think maybe you never know. You never know. <laughs> Um, before we let you go, I, I know Corey and I are both dying to hear if you have some recommended reads for our listeners. Um, I have so many. Uh, I just reviewed Rebecca Mackay's new novel for the Boston Globe. I have some questions that. for you. Looking at it right here, it's so great. Um, you know, I'm, I, I just read Paul Harding's new novel, This Other Eden. I thought it was marvelous. Uh, I recommend Ann Beattie's new collection of stories coming out this summer. I'm looking at my galley on my shelf right here. Um, what's it, what's it Deshaun, called? It's called Onlookers, and it's fantastic. Um, Deshaun Charles Winslow, have you read anything by him? He won the Center for Fiction Prize for Best First Novel, and he has a new novel called Decent People, which came uh, out I in January. I haven't. Corey, have you, have you read him? I haven't, no. Oh, he's fantastic. He's fantastic. Um, I, the novel came out, I believe, in January. And Monsters by Claire Detterer, which is coming out, I believe, in March or April. She, um, it's about monstrous men in our culture. And um, you all, you both probably know that I was in the documentary Alan V. Farrow because I dated Mia Farrow's son for six years. And Claire was in the documentary with me. Um, talking about Woody Allen as a big fan of his. So this is, can we love the work of Hemingway, Polanski, Woody Allen, Miles Davis, or Picasso? Should we love it? It's a brilliant mm. book. Uh, we clearly need to have like several more podcast episodes with you, Priscilla, <laughs> to talk about. Well, I would love that, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about your incredibly just rich life. Um, but I want to just thank you so much uh, and just, I can't recommend highly enough The Critic's Daughter. And I also want to thank Corey for, for coming on to talk about this book, which we both really loved. Thank you both so much for your enthusiasm, your in extremely insightful and, and moving questions. Um, this was a complete joy for me. For me too. Thanks for inviting me, Chris. And, and thanks, Priscilla, for putting this amazing memoir out into the world. It's been a pleasure and an honor discussing it with you. Thank you so much. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to the wonderful Priscilla Gilman, who is a writer after her father's heart. Her memoir, The Critic's Daughter, and all Priscilla's wonderful recommendations are linked at the website, Burned by Books. There you'll find all our previous episodes and recommended books, podcast merch, and ways to get in touch. If you have a moment, please leave a rating on our iTunes page as it draws us more listeners. A very special thanks to my dear friend, Corey McElhaney, for his beautiful questions and his willingness to host this episode with me. Next week, I talk with debut novelist and former writer for The Daily Show, Kashana Cauley, about her novel, The Survivalists. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.